You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Once again, this is Garrett Ashley Mullet. It is Saturday morning, and I am recording... About two hours later than I typically do on this podcast, most mornings I am up around 5 o'clock in the morning. No alarm. I wake up maybe sometimes 4.30, 4.45, sometimes 5.10, 5.15, but it's always right in there around 5 a.m. This morning I woke up quite a bit later. It was actually closer to seven, then five. And the reason for that was I got home yesterday afternoon, or rather I was almost home. I was two streets away from home. And I got a call from Ken Brewer at work. He said, hey, we're having issues with our VRU and it keeps going down. Can you go out there and take a look at it? I said, yeah, you bet. I'm close enough to home. I'll just stop in, say hey to my wife and my kids, and then I'll turn around and go on back. About 12.30, 12.45, I returned home again, which made yesterday about, well, I don't remember how I added it up. It was so close to bedtime and I was so tired, but it was over 17 hours. It was an over 17-hour day, and those happen. But when those happen, I don't naturally wake up at 5 a.m. So there you go. It is actually 8 a.m. now. And usually I've had my cup of coffee by 6, my first cup of coffee for the day. And I've smoked my pipe and I've read the news and I've checked my email and I've got up to speed on things. And then about 6 a.m., give or take 15 minutes, I start podcasting and instead It's 8 a.m. on a Saturday, and here we are. But nevertheless, we're going to do a kinder, gentler podcast this morning. And we're going to talk about contentment, resilience, and instant gratification. One of the things that I'm struck by as I'm recording here my 161st episode of this podcast having come a long ways, right? Having come a long ways from loosey-goosey recording it on my phone as I'm driving out to work and then realizing that the audio is terrible to ordering a cheap Chinese microphone that I plug into my computer at home and then trying to figure out, okay, how do I create space and time in which to record these without waking everybody up if it's early in the morning or without having the background noise of all of my children and my wife and life happening, how do I do this and make it work? Regardless of what I'm going to say, before we even get into saying something and refining your message and being organized in your content and cutting out the uhs and the ums and making a lick of sense half the time, that's where it all started. And then as I've continued on, as I picked it back up, this past October, I all of a sudden had a much better microphone. All of a sudden, I'm figuring out how to use editing software, and I'm figuring out how to use Audacity for 
editing the audio. And then the task was, new challenge, Garrett, bring it down. Condense this. Don't have it be an hour-long podcast. Some people love that. Lots of people say that's too long, and most podcasts that they listen to are 15, 20, 30 minutes long. So try to get it to 30 minutes. Well, about the best I'm doing so far is 40 minutes. My average episode length for all of the 96 episodes in Season 3 is 39 minutes and 53 seconds as of Episode 160 of the Garrett Ashley Mellon Show. So 95 episodes so far this year since January 1st. And out of those 95 episodes, 39 minutes and 53 seconds is what I'm at. That's not 30 minutes. I'm still over 30 minutes, but I'm closer to the 30-minute mark. And I've really wrestled with this. And I've talked about this a number of times. It's been a while since I talked about it last, but I've wrestled with What am I trying to do if I get it down to 30 minutes? Am I trying to appeal to people's short attention spans? Well, I don't want to do that. People have short enough attention spans as it is. And so then I talk with people who advise cutting it down to 30 minutes, and they say, oh, no, 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 no. You just have to accept that that's just what it is, right? Most of the popular podcasts that get listened to often are closer to that 15, 20-minute. You're at an hour. That's way too long. you got to bring that down. You got to scale that back. You got to make it more lean. And so then I think to myself, well, wait a second. Why? Right? Like, why do I have to? Why don't they come to me? Why do I have to come to them? And so I grapple with that and I wrestle with that. And I've seen more and more the wisdom as I've gone on of trying it, right? Let's try to get closer to that. I'm not at 20 minutes, but I've shaved 20 minutes off of my typical format. I'm getting better, right? It's getting more polished. It's getting more focused. It's getting more organized Which, with each passing episode. Even if it may not seem like it always, I catch something every episode where I say, you know what, that thought wasn't very clear. Or I kind of didn't finish that sentence before I skipped on to the next one. Or boy, howdy, I need to pick up the pace because I'm talking like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. And I need to develop that thought before I start communicating it, or I need to communicate it in a different way. And so each episode, I'm I'm doing the continuous improvement thing. But again, the question is why? Like, what am I getting at? Why am I doing this? Why try to get it shorter? Why try to get it more organized? Why try to get it more compact? And there is actually a host of good reasons. The more I've thought about it, the more I've tried to step outside of myself and not be stubborn, not be stiff-necked, the more I realize there are good reasons. And some of those reasons have to do with understanding where your audience is at. And then, for that matter, go back a step further, who is your audience? Well, I'll tell you, most of you who are listening are my friends and family. And some of you are complete strangers. I've never met you. Or if I have met you, I didn't know it. I don't know that you're listening Unless you tell me, and you're probably not going to tell me, but if you do, that implies that we're we're at least, you know, on some kind of a personal basis relationship. And so, who is my audience intended? My my audience actual is point A. My audience intended is point B. Well, my intended audience is everyone. I'm talking about everything. I want to talk to everyone. I want everyone to listen up. 
The scoffers, sometimes when I say you, I mean the scoffers. Hey, you scoffers, you guys, you're listening. I caught your attention on something. You Bill Mars, you Richard Dawkins, right? And sometimes that's not clear because I'm saying you and I'm saying in my mind, you scoffer, but I need to make that more clear. Sometimes I'm talking to the folks who really are just adrift. They, they have some fuzzy idea of what is good and that things that are happening and things that are said in broader society are not always good. Or they're not truly, purely good. There's bad mixed in. There's corrupt mixed motives in the messaging, in the things that are popular. And that really, too, is, is part of my big grapple here is that so many of the things that are popular are assumed to have a veneer of respectability and goodness and virtue by virtue of their popularity. It is a logical fallacy of sorts that I think is very, very subtle in that argumentum ad populum, an argument from the people, tells us that there's a certain level of safety, there's a certain degree of acceptability to something if it has a wide audience, if it has a lot of people that are for it. And I don't know if this podcast is ever going to be popular. If it ever is, it's going to be the funniest thing in the world. And I'm going to laugh my butt off if this podcast is ever popular. And what I mean by popular is I mean you open up whatever your preferred uh, podcasting utility is and boom, there, the top of the page. This platform is saying, hey, you should check out the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. That will just be the funniest thing in the world, partly because that's not the end goal for me, believe it or not. The end goal of getting that audience is not to have that audience. The end goal of getting that audience is to get people thinking along truer, more virtuous lines. And sometimes in the process of trying to get that to happen, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give you the raw feed. And I do this with work sometimes. And it stresses people out depending on who they are, depending on the situation. And I have to keep it in balance. But you give people the raw feed as you're troubleshooting a problem. They want to know, okay, why is this piece of equipment down? Why can't we run this? Why is it not working? How are we doing? Where are we at? When are you going to be done? Have you figured it out yet? What's the latest? I need an update. And I've been working in this field for nine years, if you want to think oil and gas industry, for four and a half or so years, if you want to think in terms of just the instrumentation, automation, electrical side of things. And always when I get the call, it is because a lot of money per hour per day is waiting to be made again until I figure out this thing. Or our exposure to risk is very high. A lot of money stands to be lost if we don't get this thing protecting us, giving us a view to a certain hazard which we have to monitor, we have to mitigate, we have to be able to protect ourselves from because we're dealing with explosive, toxic, dangerous, flammable things. That's our bread and butter. So also with these metaphysical things, these political, philosophical, social, relational, spiritual, biblical ideas that are all connected. 
I insist on talking about everything because these things are all connected. They are all related and interrelated, and they all impact one another. And society, American society, for the past century has been ruled by experts. That is how you got the 1960s, believe it or not. You got the 1960s and the sexual revolution and the hippie movement and the anti-war, anti-Vietnam, spit on our veterans when they come back from overseas movements in society. You got those trends because earlier in the century, the brain trust was all about trusting the experts. You need to trust experts. You need to trust the science. You need to follow the science. That's not a new idea. Before Dr. Fauci and others started saying that with COVID, a century before that, that was being said all over the place because America was becoming modern. And now we're postmodern. But before we were postmodern, we were modern. And in order to understand what postmodern even means, you have to understand modernity. You have to understand this trend towards believing the person with the credential, believing the person with the big fancy degree. In the 19th century, it was a free-for-all, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes in terms of selling quack cures and things like that. And there was a push from, I think, the top to try and protect people from uncredentialed folks who were making outrageous claims, and there was nothing to support what they were alleging. They were defrauding people. They were con artists. They were confidence men. That's what con artist or con man means is confidence artist, confidence man. In other words, they were adept at getting the confidence of people that they had no right to get the confidence of. You should not trust this person. He is dishonest. He is a fraud. He is a huckster. He is trying to steal your money. He's trying to sell you something that's worthless in exchange for your money, which he's then going to skip town and enjoy to the hilt. So then you get the emphasis placed on everybody needing to be an expert, everybody needing to be credentialed, everybody needing to have somebody credentialed, somebody expert to make informed uh, advice on their life choices. Freud and psychology replaced going to church and going to the Bible and reading the Bible for yourself because reading the Bible for yourself ended up becoming kind of a loosey-goosey, what does it mean to you, what does it mean to me, emotional affair. The Civil War as a theological crisis, which I've talked about in recent weeks, is a great book by Mark A. Knoll, but it highlights the way that this excessive embrace of liberty colored, no pun intended, the way that theologians and pastors and lay people in the South read the Bible, read the scriptures pertaining to racism and slavery and all of that. They read those passages and they asked, well, what does this mean to me? And they didn't always do very good biblical scholarship and they didn't take the whole counsel of God into consideration when they treated their slaves X, Y, Z way, when they treated their fellow man, even if he wasn't a slave, X, Y, Z way, just because he was black or mulatto. So then you get this urge after the Civil War, after World War I and World War II, to move away from 
these things which provoke strong emotion, which supposedly wars are made of, religious conviction, nationalism. Let's get away from these quote-unquote strong gods, as R.R. Reno puts it in Return of the Strong Gods. Let's get away from these things which compel us to sometimes fight. Let's get away from the things that are worth fighting for so that we don't fight anymore because everybody just wants peace now. You get rid of those areas of life in which we feel strong attachment, strong loyalty, and you move to trusting experts who are emotionally detached, secular, godless in their prescriptions, in their analysis, and it feels good, and it gives a kind of license to living any old way you please. Urbanization of America, thanks to transportation advances, electricity, indoor plumbing, thanks to advances in medicine, thanks to refrigeration, the invention of refrigeration techniques in conjunction with electricity, being able to get food to the cities, put it in a supermarket, people can go in and buy that food. All of a sudden it becomes possible to build up. You don't have to have so much spreading out. So cities get bigger and bigger. And urbanization goes hand in hand with this move toward trusting experts. Because you can't go into the city of millions of people and expect that you're going to do everything for yourself. You don't have a cow in the backyard that you go out every morning or you send your children out every morning to go milk. You don't send your kids out to go and collect the eggs from the chickens when you live in a high-rise apartment. In fact, you probably don't even do your own electrical work, your own plumbing. When there are things around the house that need to be taken care of, you call any one of hundreds of specialists in town, in the city, and one of them comes out and they do it for you. And meanwhile, you go to your very specialized job and you do that over and over again all over the city. And that's how cities work. And so that lends itself to a reliance on experts by default because that's how the city works. That's not how the country works. That's not how rural life works. When I live three hours, four hours from the nearest doctor and an hour from town and the nearest grocery store and as far away from the nearest Starbucks as any person in the continental United States possibly could live. I make my own damn coffee, thank you. And sometimes I do a little bit of field dressing because there was a deer eating in my garden and it took some of my food so I took some food back. Sometimes if you have a problem with a horse thief, there is some country justice that gets meted out because we can't take this before the illustrious judge up the street and have him take his dear sweet time. This person's going to sit in the jail. It's been specially constructed so that we can deal with criminals and criminality on an industrial scale. All of this is to say the rise of reliance on experts for everything has made us more godless because the experts that we have preferred in American society have not been so often experts in theology, although there is a form of this that has seen its expression in 
the church in Christianity. We turn to psychologists instead of turning to the scriptures more often than not. And you can have Christian psychologists. I'm not saying you can't. I'm not saying you can't understand the science of human psychology and also be a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. But the type of psychology, the mass popular psychology, which has been prevalent for the past century, has not been Dr. Dobson, focus on the family type psychology, counseling husbands and wives through marital problems, counseling parents through struggles with their children being rebellious or having behavioral issues. The kind of psychology that has been very popular has been to look to the subconscious as the product of evolution. We are evolved creatures. We've evolved over millions of years, and we still have holdovers in our attitudes, our responses, our reactions to things from back when we were living in caves, back before marriage was an institution, back before there were laws and rules against homicide and murder, back when you had to keep the club handy because your neighbor might come over, try to bop you over the head and run off with your woman, slay your children because they were going to be competing with his children for limited hunter-gatherer lifestyle in the area. So then psychology, informed by this metaphysical origin story for humanity, is godless. And it becomes increasingly nihilistic as we move further and further away from the root of Western civilization, the root of Christian civilization, to be more specific. You can have Western civilization, of course, without an embrace of Christianity. But in America, we had a Western civilization which was decidedly Christian in its tone and tenor. And then the 20th century and the 21st century now. And we have people that are so expert in single-factor analysis that they can't see the forest for the trees most of the time. And what we need are, what we, what we need are polymaths. I'm not trying to tout myself as so brilliant. But I will say, I have always been fascinated by polymaths ever since I found out that that was a term and that was a thing. You're Leonardo da Vinci's who are multidiscipline, who want to understand everything. They want to tinker with, invent, study, understand everything. They want to talk about everything, maybe even if they have a podcast. But all of this really needs to be taken in stride. All of this vague notion that I'm describing for you of pursuing that thing, that virtue, that attitude, which is sorely needed, that mindset, that state of being. It's all beside the point because the folks who have advised me to have shorter episodes, to be more focused, maybe don't talk about everything. Maybe talk about a narrow range of subjects. They might be absolutely right. You know, I was telling Paul Pavlik, my friend and one of our pastors at some of you Community Church, this past week, as we were talking about The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, 
I said, I'm really grappling as I'm reading through this book. We're four chapters in now, doing about a chapter a week. It's about our pace and talking through it. But I said, I'm really struck as I read more on this by the areas of discontentment in my life. And I'm trying to be intentional as I read a chapter, thinking through, okay, what am I discontented about? If I do get angry easily some days, why is that? What is it that is setting me off? If I get frustrated or discouraged too easily some days, why is that? Where is that coming from? What's driving that? Because I need to understand it. If I'm going to do anything about it, I have to understand it. And I'm thinking about big picture, macro level. I've told some people, not everybody, that my big dream for retirement, God willing, we live and do this or that. If I won the lottery, if some rich rich uncle uh, money bags were to pass on and leave his vast fortune to me, what would I do with it? I would buy hundreds of acres, maybe in the San Luis Valley here in Colorado. Gorgeous, gorgeous place that Eli and I drove through in the midst of rain, thunderstorms, rain on our way back from New Mexico. It was about sunset. And it was just absolutely gorgeous. It was one of the most beautiful places on earth I have ever been to or through absolutely loved it. But I would buy hundreds of acres there and build a house designed by me. My sons and I would build it with our own hands. And I'd have pastures with strong fences made out of tubing, old tubing from oil and gas wells. And I would raise bison. I'd have a herd of bison and we'd have a little restaurant little diner, at least, right next to the ranch. People could come there and they could eat the delicious things that my wife comes up with, the culinary creations. We'd have a greenhouse, big greenhouse. We'd do some hydroponics, some aeroponics. We would grow produce year-round, herbs, vegetables, fruits. And we would have this restaurant and we would feed people our produce, and our bison. And we'd have some dairy goats. We'd make goat cheese. We'd have lots of dishes that were made with bison and goat cheese and bacon and fresh produce, spinach, olives. And I would sit on my front porch and rock in my rocking chair and I would work on my novel. Or I would sit in my watchtower. I would build at one of my ideas for building a house someday is I want a watchtower and I want it to be circular, almost like an air traffic controller tower. I want to be able to go up into my tower and I want to be able to spin around in my chair 360 degrees and look out and survey the horizon in every direction as far as the eye can see. And I want to be able to look down at the book I'm reading, at the book I'm writing and be able to look up and see where my children are, or some years hence, my grandchildren are. Be able to see the sun setting, the sun rising. That's my dream. That's my American dream, if you will. And what if it doesn't happen? Am I good with that? Am I okay with that? Is that something I can be content with if God has other designs? 
And I'm talking with Paul about it. And I said, I have to be. You know, I, I, I need to be. I need to be okay with that. There are times, like, for instance, maybe occasionally when I get home at closer to 1 a.m. after having gone to work 7 a.m. the previous day, there are times when I sometimes wonder, do I have any control over my life whatsoever to where I could even, in my wildest dreams, perhaps they are my wildest dreams, look forward to that kind of a future lifestyle. And in those times, if I get frustrated too easily, how much of it is because I'm thinking, that's never going to happen. If it never does happen, it needs to be okay. God willing, we will live and do this or that. It might be a beautiful dream, but if God does not ordain that that be the outcome, then it's my lot to presume that he has a more beautiful dream. Even in trial, even in setbacks, even in circumstances which are difficult. That's one of the big things that Jeremiah Burroughs talks about that seems to be slipping its way into my podcasting, my conversation, my random thoughts as I'm reading other books. This idea that we do go through struggles and difficulties and how do we handle that? When we do, is it okay to express discomfort and unhappiness? Is it okay to say, I don't like this. This is hard. This is painful. I don't want this. Is it okay to communicate those things in a very real, genuine way? Burroughs, at least, says, yes, it is. So long as those communications don't become a sinning against God or our fellow man. In fact, it might be entirely proper, healthy, needful for you to communicate to a trusted brother or sister in Christ, to somebody who is going to give you feedback and encouragement in those difficult circumstances, somebody who's going to give you wise counsel, someone who's going to help you. It might be very needful for you to say, here's what's going on, and it's really hard, and I'm struggling with it. Please pray for me. Do you have any advice? What do you think? That might be very needful. And yet at the same time, the difficulty for the Christian is that we should be content towards God, believing, as the scriptures say, that God establishes which of our plans it pleases him to establish. God directs and rules and reigns over the universe, even our tiny little corner of it. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. He knows the thoughts of our hearts and minds. And are we content with the way he is ruling and reigning? Are we content with what he permits to happen, what he allows to happen? Are we content towards God when bad things happen to good people, supposedly? Are we content in Job's circumstances? Are we content in the Apostle Paul's circumstances when he prays that God would remove this thorn in the flesh that he has, which is surely a vague reference to something we know not what. When God replies to Job and says, where were you when I 
created the heavens and the earth, when God responds to Paul and says, my grace is sufficient for thee, are we content with that? Sometimes our frustration, our pain, our anger, our despair needs to be weighed and measured in light of our relationship with God. Not to add sorrows, not to guilt us into stowing it, but to double check how much of our added pain is that we have pulled away from our Lord and Savior, thereby adding to our troubles. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, as James, the brother of Jesus, says in the New Testament. We read that, and if we grasp it, and if we embrace that, if we ask God for wisdom, I think very often what he gives us by way of wisdom is a contentedness with our circumstance, which empowers us counterintuitively to be able to engage it in the most productive way possible. You first have to accept that this is reality. And if you avoid the reality of your situation, how can you possibly assess your options within it? How can you possibly make a wise choice if you're not willing to recognize that indeed there's a problem here that needs to be dealt with and reckoned with? That's the stuff that resilience is made of. And if we are too comfortable going with the flow in the 21st century and postmodern America, we're going to be so desirous of instant gratification that we don't stop to think about the questions being asked in the rare jewel of Christian contentment, for instance. We're not going to slow down and say, well, wait a second, what about that? That's a good point. How am I doing on that? Where am I at on that? We don't need to be happy all the time, folks. We don't need to be successful as the world counts success all the time. But we can be content by God's grace. And the scriptures say that godliness with contentment is great gain. Chew on that. I've been chewing on it for weeks now, ever since the idea of reading Jeremiah Burroughs was proposed by Paul. And again, thank you, Paul. Ever since he recommended it, I've been chewing on that, trying to just turn it over in my head, trying to study it from all angles. Godliness with contentment is great gain, as God's word says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It feels like a puzzle, doesn't it? How is it great gain to be content in your circumstance and to be godly. Part of the answer, though by no means the only answer or all there is to the answer, but part of the answer is that in Christ we have everything we need for life and godliness. If you have everything you want or could want or desire, everything you need for life, what more is there? Isn't that the very definition of contentment? Isn't that the prerequisite for contentment, having everything you could want or need, and resting in that, and being at peace in that. Not that you are never sinned against, not that you're never grieved by others, abused, not that you shouldn't be upset when other people around you grieve you through action or inaction, through statement or a failure 
to make statements. But if our focus is, our priority is, our first and foremost greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself, all of a sudden we reframe these supposed setbacks and we start looking for the hand of God, providence, as people used to say, in the details. How might this circumstance, which seems like a major blow, turn out for the good the way that God turned Joseph's circumstances for the good? How might God use this to bring many sons to glory? How might he use this to glorify himself? How might he use this to bless other people? Those are the kinds of questions we start asking when we reframe difficulties, trials, struggles, challenges, pains, real ones. I'm not talking about they forgot your ranch dipping sauce when you picked up your order for lunch. I'm talking about major setbacks, things that don't go according to plan at all. You thought you were going to be here, but you're not there. And why is that? Who can you blame? Can you blame other people? Is it their fault? Did they do this to you? Do you have to blame yourself? Be angry with yourself? Be depressed and dejected? Well, wait a second. It's like the Pharisees asking Jesus at one point, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. D, none of the above. This man was born blind for God's glory, if I can paraphrase. This man was born blind so that right this second, before your very eyes, I would open his eyes. How about that? God knows what he's doing. We don't very often in the minutiae, but God knows what he's doing, and we can trust that he knows what he's doing, and we can be content in that, and we can strive to live a godly life regardless of setbacks. Yes, you might get angry. Yes, you might get frustrated. Yes, you might get discouraged sometimes. Don't despair. In your anger, do not sin. Don't say things that aren't true, that aren't helpful, that aren't good. Don't get caught up in the moment and get carried away. Don't get nihilistic. Don't numb the pain by saying, well, it doesn't matter. Nothing means anything. We're here and then we die. Don't do that. It's not true. The truth is a little more complicated than that. And it's a good thing, too, if we think about it. And that's also part of what it means when we read that godliness with contentment is great gain. I got to leave it there, or if I don't have to, I'm going to, because now I'm into the 40-minute zone again, and it's 8.40, and I want to go get another cup of coffee, and I want to take it easy, because it's Saturday, and I worked late. I worked 17 hours yesterday. I worked half of uh, an office person's weekly job, weekly hours yesterday. So, as always, thank you for listening. If you have any more thoughts on this, anything to add, questions, uh, suggestions for future episodes. I love getting suggestions for future episodes. I love it when people say, hey, you should talk about this. I have a backlog of at least two that I'm thinking of right at the moment. If I have forgotten one, you made a suggestion. I didn't follow up on it. Hit me up again. And uh, until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.